chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 28 through 30. Uh, The message this morning is a revision of a message I preached seven or eight years ago, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that this week has been an incredibly difficult week, and I am raw and weary and uh, um, needed a little bit of uh, help in getting ready for Sunday. Um, The second is that these verses have just been on my mind a lot this this past week, and I thought it would be fitting uh, to revisit, uh, revise, so it's not the same message I did seven year, or eight years ago, um, uh, but it is similar in content and structure. So full disclosure there. So Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. If you're, uh, let's uh, ask for God's anointing on his word. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word together this morning, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And I pray, O Lord, that you would teach us the truth of these beautiful words of the Apostle Paul, your words, Lord, through him. Give us hearts to receive them, not only minds that would properly understand them, but, Lord, hearts that would receive them and live in the deep hope that they contain. And so may these words and may uh, the exposition of your word this morning be fruitful for us. And may it be planted deep in our hearts, O Lord, in such a way that it would produce transformation in us that would be for our good and for your glory. We offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. If, uh, you have not yet, if children have not yet been dismissed, they can be dismissed to children's worship at this time. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. The Apostle Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The focus is really going to fall mainly on verse 28, but we'll look at the others as well. If you, you may be seated. There is something within us that that longs for good. And this is why I think so many, almost all fairy tales end in happily ever after, because the writers of fairy tales know what readers want. We want good for the characters in the stories because ultimately we want good for us. And I suspect that this is also why Romans 8 verse 28 is one of the most cherished of all verses in the Bible. It is so cherished because it promises good into all of the drama and the craziness and the fear and the ugliness, the uncertainty and the brokenness of our lives that speaks the hope of something good. But if we are going to hang so much of our hope on this verse, as so many uh, believers do, we need to know what it really means. I think too many Christians have drawn from these verses a false hope based on a skewed understanding of what Paul says. Uh, 
And so the question that I want to explore with you this morning is, what does Paul really mean when he says all things work for our good? And we're going to get at that question really in two ways. We're going to look first at four things that Paul does not mean, four misinterpretations of this verse, and then we'll see four truths that help us determine what he really does mean. So let's begin by exploring uh, the uh, four things that Paul does not mean. So first, Paul does not mean that all things naturally tend toward good. Paul is not setting before us a sort of naively optimistic interpretation of history. It is simply not true that all things tend to work out for good, as if the world sort of is inherently wired uh, to undo the messes that we make and to heal the pains that we encounter. You know, some people take from these verses that the world is kind of like those punching dolls that are designed to always stand upright so that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you hit them, no matter, no matter how many times you hit them, it always comes back into the upright position with that silly little happy smile painted on its face. And some people imagine that that's the way human life works as well, that we get knocked down, but it's okay because we always land on our feet because all things just naturally work out for our good. Well, this is not what Paul means, because it's just simply not true that all things tend to work out for good. In fact, Paul has said just a few verses earlier in Romans 8 that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, groaning, he says, to be liberated from its bondage to decay. That is not the language of a world that is inherently writing itself. That is inherently getting back into that, you know, making things better on its own. It is a world in bondage to decay. The world was broken by human sin, and now the natural tendency is for things to fall apart. Things don't by nature come together for good. The world is is utterly dependent on the sustaining hand of God and the redeeming work of Christ to put it right again. That There's no other way that it's going to be made whole or, or going to be restored. Apart from this sustaining work of Christ, the the whole system will keep unraveling back into chaos and emptiness and loss. And so it is not the natural course of things to work out for good. It is the intentional work of the Creator, who is at work making a beautiful picture even out of ugly pieces. That's the first thing that that Paul does not mean. Second, Paul does not mean that only the end is good. That life may be full of trouble and and hardship and pain now, but at least we can be assured that that something happy awaits us at the end. Now, that is true, but it's not the only thing that is true. So Paul is not saying that the, the bad things you experience are just hopelessly bad. But take comfort because there are better days ahead. So this is as bad, this is just, just bad, but there will be good days ahead. That's, that's, not the, that's not the perspective. In other words, Paul is not an escapist. He's not telling us to deal with the pain of this life simply by escaping into a future reality when things will be good. Now, like I said, he, Paul does point us to a beautiful and glorious future. And in fact, that's a significant part of, of Romans chapter 8, this beautiful chapter, one of the most beautiful chapters in all Scripture. And a significant part of that is this glorious future that Paul paints. And in fact, in the broader context of Romans 8, Paul wants us to see our suffering against the, the backdrop of this future glory. It's kind of like putting a, a diamond necklace. How, you know, a diamond necklace looks great if it's just on its own, but it looks even more brilliant against a, a dark 
black velvet backdrop. And that's what Paul is doing in these verses, that he he's, wants us to see our suffering against that backdrop of the glorious future that is to come. And so Paul, for example, says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And so he is pointing us to a good and glorious future, and he wants us to see and to understand our suffering in that context. But here's the thing. His words of hope are not only for the future. So he is saying that even now the the bad things we experience are working together for our good. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Consider it, or think of it this way. If a, a man is in prison and someone uh, comes to him with a message that in 20 years he will be released from prison and life will be good again, it's really not all that hopeful of a message, is it? I mean, there's a measure of hope in that, but it's really, really the message then is that, is that the 20 years are just wasted years. Those 20 years in prison while he waits is just sort of meaningless, empty waiting. They're meaningless and lost and hopelessly broken, just waiting for that day to come when he will be released. But, but what if somebody instead comes to that man in prison and, and says that in 20 years he will be released, and in the meantime, things will be working together to produce, to produce good in him and to prepare him even more for that day that is to come. Well, then those 20 years in prison aren't wasted years at all. There's purpose in them. There's meaning and there's hope, not, not just for the future, but even in the present. And that's the perspective that Paul wants us to take from, from Romans 8, verse 28. If we spend our lives fixed on a hope that is entirely and exclusively future, we will end up bemoaning the present and not seeing the good things that God is doing even here and now. And so Paul's message in Romans 8, verse 28, is a message of hope both for the present and for the future. The third thing that Paul does not mean is that there are really no bad things in life. So in other words, Paul is not minimizing or dismissing the fact that bad things really do happen. You know, some people seem to take Paul's words here to mean that, that, bad, that there really are no bad things. Bad things are really just blessings in disguise. And, and sometimes people can use these words of Paul in sort of a harmful way uh, to those who are enduring the, the pain of something bad in their lives. And their message, whether they say it or not, but the message implicitly that they're communicating is, you know, don't, don't uh, lament this thing that has happened. You, you just have to look harder to find the good in it. It's, you know, there's no bad things it's really not, there's this, this is not a bad thing. God is doing something good in it. You just have to look harder for the good. So don't, don't lament the bad thing you're experiencing. Just look a little harder and you'll see the good. I think that is a tragic and hurtful abuse of this text. Whatever Paul means in these verses, we must not take them to mean that bad things really aren't bad. That everything that happens in life is good if we just look hard enough to see it. it. It's not good when a loved one dies of cancer. It's not good. It's not good when a parent buries a child. It's not good when hurricanes tear apart homes and villages. I mean, th- these are genuinely bad and hurtful things, and the message of Paul here in this text is not to have us somehow twist them into something good. Or to make people feel guilty if they are just lamenting. Lament is an incredibly important part of our walk as as the people of God. 
And so we are, we are right to cry out against these things, and we're, we're right to feel the sting of them. And that's kind of where I've, where I've been, where we've been the past couple of months. I've watched Lori endure many moments of just utter anguish and agony, and especially this, this past week. Um, and these, these have been, I mean, uh, like I said, I, I'm so thankful for your, your prayers. These, these have been some of the darkest and worst days that we've endured. And Paul's message to us in these verses, I believe, is not meant to minimize the harsh reality that bad things happen. This is a bad stretch. This is a bad season. This is a painful time in life. When Jesus stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he didn't correct the people for their weeping. He didn't say, hey, you know, you guys are looking at this all wrong. You know, don't grieve, don't lament this, this just look, look for the good in it. No, uh, John says instead that Jesus wept, which I think is one of the most profound verses in Scripture. He wept with them. He acknowledged the pain and the badness of what they were enduring. Fourth, Paul does not mean that fewer bad things will happen to those who follow Christ than to those who do not. Some Christians, I think, seem to think that if we love God and serve Him, then we won't, we won't have as many bad things happen to us. That, that just by and large, in general, our life circumstances will be better. But that's not what Scripture says. Jesus Himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. And right here in Romans 8, Paul lists all kinds of things that believers might endure in this life, things that he himself had faced and was enduring in his life. He mentions trouble and hardship, persecution and famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. And so we are not immune to any of these things. The, the promise of Romans 8 verse 28 is not a promise of material wealth or physical well-being for Christians. It's not a promise of an easier life. And so if we draw out of this verse an expectation that life will be easier for us than for those who don't belong to God, we will be sorely disappointed because that's not what Paul means. Bad things will happen to Christians just like they happen to everyone else. It's just that we have a different perspective for, for dealing with those bad things, but careers will be sabotaged and diseases will debilitate and accidents will happen and trouble will, will come again and again. So these are some things that Paul does not mean in Romans 8, verse 28. And of course, that then begs the question, well, what then does Paul mean? And there are four truths in this text that I think will help us arrive at the right meaning. The first truth is that, and it may seem to go without saying, but there's a reason I, I included it, that God is the one who works for our good. And the reason I include that is because it's not really uh, implicit or immediately obvious in the Greek text. And depending on what translation of the Bible you read, then it's maybe not immediately obvious in that translation either. So um, a literal translation of this verse is this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, I think the NIV gets it right. Uh, you know, you can debate the, which is a better translation, NIV or ESV. ESV, in this case, is a more technically accurate translation, but I think the NIV gets it right in this case because the NIV adds God into its translation, though technically in the Greek text, the word God is not there, although it is there in some manuscripts, but not the most reliable, the most, uh, uh, those that carry the most weight. So, um, but I think it's, the NIV is right to add it because 
God is clearly the implied subject in this verse. And so the NIV uh, says this, that, and we know that in all things, God, the implied subject, works for the good of those who love him. So the context makes it clear that God is the implied subject, which means God is the one who works all things together for good. God is, in a sense, this great composer conducting all things with purpose. He is the master artist uh, working through every stroke of the brush, every single strand and every stroke to create a masterpiece. So God is the one who works for our good. The second truth is that God is making all things, all things work together for the good of those who love him. And now when Paul says all things, he means all things. He actually means all things. It is an all-inclusive term. He doesn't mean just the pleasant things. Uh, He means all things. The all things of verse 28 includes the sufferings of verse 17 and the groanings of verse 23. It means the beautiful things and the ugly things. It means the happy things and the painful things, the pleasant things and the bad things, which is why we sang this morning, you know, blessed be your name in the, in, in the beautiful place and in the dark place. Blessed be your name when all is going well and when things are all falling apart. Blessed be your name. Through all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. You see, what Paul is saying is that nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's providence. This is very much a providential verse. God is making everything in our lives, all things, uh, every single strand of our existence, every experience, every encounter, every pain, every grief, every joy, every blessing, every sorrow, everything, every single experience and every single emotion and every single encounter, God is working, taking all of these things together. And in fact, the Greek word that Paul uses here is the word uh, which is translated works, uh, work together, is the Greek word synergeo, from which we get the English word synergy, uh, where all things come together to work, to, to cooperate, to work together for a desired or a common purpose. That's what God is doing, taking every strand of our existence and experience and making them work together for this common purpose for the good of those who love him. The third truth is that the the promise of good is limited in its application. In other words, it doesn't apply to everyone. Uh, Paul says the promise is specifically for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So this is not a promise that, that, that everything tends toward everybody's good in the end. It's a promise only for believers, only for those who are in Christ, only for for those whom God has called to himself in Christ, for those who belong to God, for those who have been sought by him, by his grace, and called according to his purpose. And the final truth is, I think, probably the most important, and that is that the good of verse 28 must be understood in light of verse 29. So what does Paul really mean when he says God works for the good of those who love him? Well, we tend to think of the good in terms of just sort of physical prosperity and well-being, for things to go well in the circumstances of our lives. That's what we naturally gravitate towards. But Paul explicitly defines the good of verse 28 with what he says next in verse 29. So he says, in, he, he, I'll show it to you here. He says in verse 28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But then he goes on and, uh, to define what that good is in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of 
his son. This is the, 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 the heart of the good that God is accomplishing in us. He's making us into the image of his son. He's shaping us to be like Christ. He's molding us and crafting us and working all things together for this purpose, that we might share in the beauty and the glory of Jesus. You see, God knows that there is no higher good and that there is nothing more supremely satisfying than for us to be like Jesus and to share in his glory. That is, that is the epitome of, that is the, 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 the highest of all possible goods. And so everything he does is driving us to that end. And this is why even suffering is part of the good that God is doing. Because it is through suffering that we know Christ more fully and are made to be more like him. And this is, of course, why Paul was able to say to the Philippians in the context of intense persecution and suffering, to, to say, I want to know Christ. And as part of knowing Christ, he said, I want to, I want to, to know the, the, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He knew that even the painful experience of suffering was accomplishing in him that greater good of becoming more like Christ and sharing in his glory. And so he was able to say, I, wanna, I want to experience that. You see, Paul understood that the glory of Christ, and this is, this is the only way that you can ever possibly pray that prayer or ever possibly have any kind of desire for, for that suffering. It, it, it does not naturally make sense at all. And it's not wrong to resist suffering either. But, but there is, this is the only possible way where you can make sense of Paul's prayer and his request in Philippians to want to know the fellowship of sharing in Christ's sufferings is this, that he, that he understood that the glory of Christ is something so rich and something so substantial, something so dazzling that it makes all earthly joys but a glimmer in comparison. And it makes even the costliest sufferings but a pinch of dust when weighed on the scale. God is working through all things for the good of making us more like Christ. And so God says to us in the words of one of John Newton's hymns, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. And in fact, Paul says this good that God is doing in us is predestined. It is fixed it's guaranteed. In other words, we are on a collision course with greatness, Paul says. God is working all things together for the supreme good of making us like Christ, that we might share in his glory. That God is doing this. God is driving us to that end. So Paul says in verse 29, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. God, God is a, the, the, the complete um, executor of the entire process from beginning to end. God is the one who initiates it. He predestined us to be conformed in the image of the Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's the whole range, the whole spectrum from beginning to end of, our, of this glorious work that God is doing in us. The glory that awaits us, I think that's such a fascinating thing that Paul uses that word glorified in the past tense because we know that it's still, at least in fullness, still to come. But that glory that awaits us is so certain and it's so guaranteed that Paul speaks of it as if it has already happened. And it's only by God's sovereign grace that that, that, that could 
possibly be true. So this is the good that God is working in us through all things. He's making us more and more like Jesus, and it is a process that, that irrevocably ends in breathtaking glory. So when you kind of take a step back and put all of this together, we see that the, the promise of Romans 8 verse 28 is a, a big picture kind of promise. Paul is saying that in and through all things, in the, in the grand scheme of things, God is painting a glorious picture. And some of the brush strokes in that picture are violent and, and bold, and, and if they stood alone, they would be ugly and repulsive and, and painful and just not at all, you just want nothing to do with them. And you think, what in the world, why is that part of a picture? Get that ugly brush stroke out of there. But God is the master artist who is using those strokes in the composition of, of his one glorious masterpiece. And all of the strokes work together with intention, with purpose, with intentionality. All of the, the colors come together to make a picture more beautiful than if any single one of those strokes was missing. A 19th century preacher said there is a seeming contradiction in the statement that all things work together for the good of those who love God. He said there's just something that seems naturally out of line. Because he said there are good things in our life and we can see how those good things work in the direction of our good. That makes sense. Those good things in our life, we can see how it is working in the direction of our good. But then what about the bad things? Because he said they seem to be working in the opposite direction. And how can those things that are working in the opposite direction be accomplishing the same good. That doesn't make sense. He said that how can something that's in this way for good, uh, how can something that is going this way also be for good, accomplishing the same thing? He said that, that makes no sense. And the old preacher answered that question with an illustration of a pocket watch. And he said, if you open a watch, what do you see? You see one wheel turning in a, in a counterclockwise direction. And it's attached to another wheel that's turning in a clockwise direction. And he said, it just seems absurd because you look at the watch and you conclude that the man who designed it, the man who made it, must be a madman. Because the wheels are turning in opposite directions. It seems to be working against itself. What kind of a machine is this? But he wasn't a madman, the old preacher said. He designed the watch with a mainspring to govern all the wheels so that when it is wound up, the, uh, the one wheel turns one way and the other wheel turns the opposite way. They are all working together to move the hands around the face of the clock in the right direction. And so they appear to be in contradiction, but they are, in fact, working together to the same end. And our lives, he says, are like that. Some things are good for us and others appear to be dead set against us. But behind it all is the great watchmaker who designed it all with purpose and who knows what he is doing and is working through it all for the good of those who love him. For those who love God and have been called according to his purpose, all things work together for the good of transforming us into the glorious image of the Son. That is the heart of the promise of this text. I, I love the way uh, Tim Keller kind of summarized and, and captured in just three succinct statements the, the, these verses, and so I'll just give it to you. He summed it up this way. He said, 
The bad things are being worked together for good. The good things can never be lost. The best things are yet to come. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who, for those who love you, for those who have been called by you, by your sovereign grace, according to your purpose, that for those who love you, all things are working together for our good, for the supreme good of shaping us more and more into the image of the Son and, and allowing us, leading us to participate in his breathtaking glory. Oh Lord, I pray as you come before your throne in a time of silence that you would speak to us, oh Lord, and show us this good that you promise in this beautiful, these beautiful verses. And work within us, O oh Lord, a deepened trust in you as the great master artist, the great watchmaker who is working through all things for the good of those who love you. Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning. Lord, as we come before your throne this morning, some of us, Lord, this morning are in places of, of great rejoicing and, and, and praise over the good things that you are doing, and we, we see them, and we praise you for them. And others, O oh Lord, are coming before your throne this morning from places of, of pain and suffering and burdens. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would Strengthen us and, and give those in, in both places, Lord, renewed hope this morning. Hope that comes from who you are and the promises of your word about what you are doing in and through all things. Lord, help us to know that in all things you are working, working together through all things for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. Lord, may we live in that hope and may we, in our lives out of broken places or happy places, may our lives be a song of praise to you. And I pray, O oh Lord, that as we continue in this life that leads us uh, sometimes on, on, on the mountains and sometimes through the valleys, Lord, uh, draw us ever nearer to you as we follow you in this world. In Jesus' name.
Amen.